Welcome to Policy Pod, PORF podcast. This episode is part of the Raisena Dialogue 2021, India's annual premier conference on geopolitics and geoeconomics. The conference is hosted by ORF in partnership with the Ministry of External Affairs, Government of India. Erin, so we've spoken about governments, we've spoken about the industry, businesses, but technology is also about individuals and that point has been made by a few of the panelists here. How do you create plural, open, transparent and democratic technological partnerships for the region's growth and stability to ensure inclusive prosperity even for its people? Well, I think that Tobias, to some extent, has actually answered that because he talked about um, the, I guess, um, challenge of the enormity of these digital companies that you see in Australia and this concentration of power around only really a few um, big technology companies. And I guess some people would be familiar with this example, and I think this might be what Tobias is alluding to, was when Facebook in particular shut down the news cycle in Australia. You could not access news through the platform. Um, and that's a rather authoritarian move in a way. And to think that one company has such power over citizens in terms of accessing news. And in Australia, I guess, I don't actually know these numbers, but if you looked at various groups in various regions, would 100% rely on that platform for, for access to the news cycle. Um, so then what does that mean in emergency situations? What does that mean um, just in access to day-to-day -day news? It, 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 it really, really does, does have, have a big impact. impact. And, and it, it was, was a very undemocratic move by one technology company which had a huge impact, impact here. Now we, we, we were able to overcome that. that. But is, is that, that the, the right, right way for a, for a media giant to be acting in Australia when we talk about a liberal democracy? Probably not. Um, so, so I think, I think that that's, that's one of the challenges that we're going to have now. And I think that the everyday citizen did look at that and say, okay, how am I accessing my news? What do I... What, what's my relationship with this piece, particular piece of technology? Um, then we saw the same thing with Twitter when you know, um, former President Trump um, shut down his account and other people went onto other platforms. But I think our memory is very short because we're all back on Facebook, we're all back on Twitter and relying on a handful of platforms, um, which is potentially, as we've seen in Australia, very dangerous for the average citizen in Australia. Uh, as Paul Kapoor bringing you in over here, because uh, at the time when this legislation was being discussed in Australia, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, had spoken to several other countries uh, in order to garner some sort of uh, a global coalition or support. Now, what I'd like to understand from you is then, in the region itself, in the Indo-Pacific then, uh, creating uh, more partnerships then certainly becomes more important. In that context, for instance, if I only talk about America, in the Indo-Pacific, is it relying largely on what is called the Quad or is there a possibility of expansion there as well? Because the United Kingdom, for instance, has indicated that it, it might want to collaborate with Quad on issues of technology and particularly 5G. Is that option open and do we need to tweak partnerships uh, to bring in more players in the region? I don't think that in the U.S. view, um, the solution to these challenges and supply chains and so on are, are limited to the Quad or, or to anybody else. Um, 
of course, the Quad is one of the institutions through which these efforts can be channeled um, and robust supply chains and, and um, secure technolo technology networks are very much in the interest of member states. Um, so if the Quad can provide you know, coordination uh, between major actors in the region, uh, that's great. Uh, and we've in fact seen that happening. We've seen the uh, supply chain resilience initiative between India and uh, Australia and Japan emerging from that. Um, but the name of the game is diversification, I think. So um, smaller states will ideally have a role in that as well, uh, providing uh, alternate nodes of manufacture. Um, probably not so much for strategically sensitive sectors, but maybe for less sensitive, perhaps, um, sectors, maybe in a, in a China plus one approach. Um, and this is where groupings like ASEAN, I think, will uh, come into the picture as well. And in fact, the Resilience Initiative um, specifically envisioned working with the ASEAN states um, to develop new regional supply networks. So the two are, are connected, really. And um, I think the U.S. will want to come at the problem from, from both levels. Again, um, I think diversification is, is really essential. And for uh, as far as extra regional actors like the UK uh, go, I, I think from the US perspective, um, cooperation from those parties is always welcome as well, um, especially on tech security. Um, as I said um, a minute ago, the, you know, the United States doesn't want to see the Indo-Pacific's uh, uh, telecommunications networks compromised, um, it, nor does it want to see uh, Europe's telecommunications networks compromised. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, if we can keep out nefarious technology and, and come up with alternatives, that would be welcome. And it's a UK, you know, the UK has actually stepped up on the 5G front already. Um, and, and that's probably had some downstream effects in, in Europe uh, as well, perhaps with the French. So uh, the more cooperation that we can get in these areas um, from small states, from, from extra regional partners, uh, I think the more is the better. Do you do you agree with what is being said by other panelists that uh, other countries in the region are equally important? Does is that how Bangladesh feels that amidst all the big players uh, that they would have a role to play over here in the Indo-Pacific? Or do you think that it is still too early to say that? I think it is the right time to consider this issue very seriously for each of our countries because you know that this uh, Indo-Pacific region is uh, the home to some of the largest digital economies in the world, uh, from USA to India, Australia, and emerging economies like uh, Bangladesh and some other countries. Uh, so, and also the total size of the digital economies uh, in this region stands to nearby uh, 400 US uh, billion dollars. So it's a huge uh, uh, potential we have. So I think uh, we have to uh, take all the necessary uh, actions and steps to be self-reliant. I'm uh, talking about the Indo-Pacific countries' uh, interdependence is very important because you know that we have the diversification. Like um, uh, if you talk about the innovation and uh, the digital economy ecosystem uh, between US, uh, India, uh, Bangladesh, Australia. Uh, so in different parts of our uh, earth and different uh, uh, areas, we have the huge population size, we have the business opportunity. At the same time, we have the uh, innovations and, and, and the infrastructures, but why we, what we need, we need to understand that what are the gaps, what are the gaps uh, we should actually fill up. So I think uh, we uh, we should take all the necessary steps to, to
to uh, to produce the uh, hardware, uh, to set up the network and uh, establish the uh, uh, infrastructures. At the same time, the nations can also take the skills and the technology uh, exchange programs between uh, all of our uh, Indo-Pacific countries. I think by this way, we we can be self-reliant. At the same time, we can secure our digital network and and our, our uh, country's security. Thank you. Aspai, how do you see uh, the role of the smaller countries in the region now emerging uh, in the Indo-Pacific? Uh, can countries come together to strengthen supply chain security, protect critical technologies, and uh, as well as sensitive data across global platforms? Ma, the sad reality is there's a concentration of digital power in very few countries, very few companies. So small countries are at a disadvantage because they are neither creator of apps, they're not creators of apps, they're consumers of apps, and all the data is gone. They're held by somewhere else. What we need today in the world is a universal declaration of digital rights, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1949, which will be an international agreement which will protect the digital rights of every single individual on this planet. And that should talk about data sovereignty so that every country has sovereignty over the data of its citizens. It should tackle the challenge of global monopolies like Google and Facebook, which have all our data, and they're very powerful. Uh, like uh, Erin said, if they could shut you off. I mean, tomorrow you could be shut off. And if I shut off, what happens to you? All your data, your creativity is there. You're gone. You're dead. You don't exist because we're all part of the network. They're the biggest threat to humanity now. And they've shown how, how bad they are by shutting off President Trump. Recently, the United States Justice, Clarence Thomas, a very eminent justice, said there's a need for a law in the United States to declare the digital monopolies as public utilities. Just like the telephone network is, the electricity network is, they have to be declared as public utilities so the citizens' rights are protected because we are over dependent on them. And this can be done to a universal declaration which will protect smaller countries. And the smaller countries also have to be part of networks. Now, another big danger that we have is that of platforms. Remember, in India, we are lucky. We have the India stack, a financial tech platform which is not owned by any private company because they're owned by a private company, they'll have enormous power. We have the health stack. And that the health stack, all our medical data will be on a public utility, which is governed by certain rules. We have guidelines for uh, social media. We need all this collateral to be put into place. And for that, to protect countries globally, a universal declaration of digital rights. And each country has to have its own collateral. And in, in addition to that, in the Indo-Pacific, we all have to come together, agree on common platform and share these common platforms. Because, you know, we don't want to be dependent on a Google. And we don't want to be dependent on a Facebook. We don't want to be dependent on a Twitter. And they're getting more and more powerful because my, all of us are a piece of data. Data can be manipulated. We saw what happened with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook when they interfered in the elections. In the next few elections all around the world, people are going to interfere. The digital networks are going to interfere. We're going to have outsiders interfere. What happens to a democracy? Now, these are very serious issues. And they have to be debated globally. We need a global understanding. Maybe in the Indo-Pacific, we can all come together for a common agreement and agree to share data, agree on cyber security, agree how to protect yourself, agree how to have common resources, agree on supply chain, agree on 5G standards. In 5G, China has the majority of the patents. China has the best technology in 5G, right? And in Africa, it's all Chinese. The Chinese own Africa. And we don't know what is going to happen. So I think we are in great danger 
Right. We have to have international agreements which will protect smaller countries, okay. and the Indo-Pacific can be an example how we can all come together. All right. I think Erin is raising her hand. She wants to make a point, and I'd like all our panelists at any stage, if anybody wants to make a comment, uh, they can quickly raise their hands uh, digitally, and then we can go ahead with the conversation. Erin. Thanks, Maha. Sorry, I went for the digital hand raise instead of the physical hand raise. Um, I just wanted to add to that. I think it's a really interesting point that you're making about this universal declaration of digital rights and so on. But there will be a bit of a correction in economic terms in the region over the next um, few decades. By the middle of the century, Indonesia and India are projected to be top four economies in the world. Pre-pandemic, you know, these things are, you know, in a state of flux at the moment. Um, but that will change the dynamic. And then on the Australian side, with regards to the Quad, we've talked a lot about US-China, a lot about the Quad here. But central to that for Australia, and I'm not speaking on behalf of the government here, to biases, but this is really important, even in think tank world, in non-government world, is the fact that ASEAN centrality is so important, and our relationship as a country with ASEAN, what we invest in that relationship, we are a dialogue and a strategic partner of ASEAN. Um, that that's where a lot of our focus is. So where we see uh, the strategies or money falling in terms of how we engage with the region, a big part of that is, is ASEAN centrality. And we all know that is about smaller states. But that dynamic will change as Indonesia rises, as India rises. Um, my co former colleague, Stephen, Professor Stephen Smith, who was our, what, our trade defence um, uh, and foreign minister for Australia previously, last year at Rizina, um, talked about, um, well, how do you accommodate the rise of Indonesia and the rise of India? as their economies grow. So there is, there is sort of this reason that we've got to be mindful of. It's not, you know, if, you, if we're looking at, you know, these digital rights, well, what does that mean when Indonesia grows and its investments in technology increase? Same with India. So there could be this kind of natural correction over the next few decades anyway. As Paul Kapoor and uh, Tobias, I, I'll bring both of you in and I'll first go across to S. Paul Kapoor. Uh, on the point that uh, Mohan Daspai made, that uh, technology, digital technology at the moment uh, and as Erin is pointing out, could change, that those dynamics could change over the next uh, couple of decades. But currently, they are concentrated in some bigger countries and US being one of them, Australia being another one. Under these circumstances, uh, you know, is the idea of... Uh, dominance of these countries over the others, even in the Indo-Pacific region, a reality that we need to deal with currently? I think it's. A, I think there's an issue there, but I don't think it's national. I mean, I, I don't think that because some of these companies are located in the U.S. and it's sort of the U.S. doing it to other countries, these firms are doing it to the U.S. I mean, as, as it was just pointed <laughs> out, they, you know, they shut down President Trump. Um, so regardless of what you, you know, one thinks or doesn't think about the president, a former president, you know, the, ability, the, the, the fact that they had the ability to do that and to completely remove him from the conversation um, with apparently no, uh, no ramifications for them um, is quite amazing, right? So um, I think that there, there are real issues with, with those companies acquiring too much power and especially because they've been thought of in, in particular ways and given legal protections in the United States that allow them to, to do things um, that that uh, may or may not be appropriate, kind of given uh, give, given the protections that may or may not be appropriate, given the sorts of activities that they engage in, right? And so, so um, those those legal protections allow them to to um, you know 
claim uh, to, to um, allow uh, opinions to be voiced on their on their networks and then and then not take responsibility for it, right? Because because they claim that they're um, you know they're not they're not actually writing it or publishing it, but they're just a kind of a neutral platform. Um, so. Uh, and that, that gives so there you know we're, in the United States there, there uh, people are arguing about whether those protections should remain in place about what some other ways uh, there might be to, uh, to 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 maybe break them up to, to curb their power in other ways but I would I would say it's a mistake to think of these these companies as sort of um, national assets or, or somehow acting on behalf of, of the country they're located in the U.S. but they act quite independently. But, Tobias, but for instance, in China, uh, the Chinese government would use them as their yeah. assets, wouldn't it? This, so the situation is very different. So how do you strike a balance? Well, what I what I would say um, is that you know, there is no doubting right now that as governments, as a society, we're playing catch up to an internet which was designed a long time ago now, relatively long time ago. Um, and began with you know hundreds of thousands of users attached to it. So there was a certain freedom culture that was associated with that freedom of everything. Um, and now we're dealing with an internet which covers over well over fifty percent of the world's population. So that's billions and billions of users. And what we're now trying to do is retrospectively, if you like, um, apply the law that equally applies online. But as nations and as individuals, we have different interpretations of how that law applies. So, you know, we're guiding ourselves through how we apply that law so that people are safe and secure in the online environment whilst not infringing upon their human rights, whilst not infringing upon their basic uh, rights as an individual uh, of communication and um, a whole host of other great things that the Internet enables and rightfully should enable. And I would, I would pose a massive caution. There are things that you do want government involved in in the online space and legislating around, and there's certainly things that you don't want them. And if you propose that governments should have absolute authority over the online space, well, A, you would lose what it enables, which is, um, you know, really the complete freedom of innovation and the kind of cultures um, for, for um, our economies, which we've enjoyed the incredible growth in the online environment over the past 30 years. Um, and equally, it plays to um, a narrative that is very prevalent in places like the UN, in various ASEAN meetings and various other multilateral forums around the increased state control of the Internet, which leads to a very different kind of society than we're very privileged to live in right now. And that is a very current and live discussion. So I think we need to be very, very careful about proposing that states should, by the, you know, really by themselves, begin carving up exactly what that looks like. This is multi-dimensional, uh, multi-actor uh, uh, environment um, where, um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, tech firms do own a, a lot of the capability and a lot of the backbone infrastructure. So we have to work in partnership. And that's challenging for governments. It, it does require that we do have to work out where do we exert influence and legislative power and where do we just need to take a bit of a back seat to allow it to function in the way that it's enabled our modern societies um, to function. So, you know, unfortunately the answer is somewhere in the middle. Um, we, we have these discussions regularly at state to state level in the various regional forums and, and global forums, um, but, but I, I certainly think with just a big degree of caution in thinking that governments would have every single answer and should begin creating big, uh, you know, signed legal agreements about exactly everything that should go on the online space. Quite frankly, you don't want government running the internet. It wouldn't be as great a place as it is now.
And that's a government official telling you that. Yes, yes. <laughs> many people would tend to agree with that, and especially the younger lot, uh, those who are driving technology currently. Uh, Zunaid Ahmad, what are the ways then in which we can enhance security and tech cooperation with public, uh, private sector, as well as the civil society? Because often the accusation comes from the civil society that the governments in the garb of uh, national security are trying to take away their freedom of expression through these digital platforms. Um, I, I think uh, I think the nations must uh, work together to bring the interoperability across the frameworks and make the bilateral cooperation uh, more effective. And also, uh, I think uh, at the same time, uh, our uh, our all the uh, member countries of Indo-Pacific area, we should uh, exchange our knowledge, and uh, we should also introduce this uh, data protection, localization, and privacy uh, laws uh, for each and every countries to protect our data, to, to protect our citizens' privacy. Uh, and But at the same time, the nations also can take upskill exchange programs uh, to develop the high-skilled workforce in the region to bring inclusive digital transformation. Because And also, we need to aware our citizens, because if we are introducing only laws or uh, uh, trying to regulate the companies, that 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 is not actually feasible for all of our countries all of our nations we have to award our citizens and we uh, have to give them uh, technological knowledge so that they should aware about their individual data protection and they should be literate in digital platforms so i think if we can work together to aware our citizens and also introduce the proper laws and regulations, then we can make this digital uh, space equal for all. Mohandas hmm. Pai, even uh, you know between uh, between countries, as there is uh, there is going to be even more competition as far as uh, uh, technological advancements are concerned. As an industry person, purely, I'm asking you. Do you, do you believe that this kind of cooperation that we're talking about in the Indo-Pacific, uh, is it a euphemistic idea? No, I think the cooperation is required to create a framework all across where we are governed by the rule of law and not by the contract. See, today we have a very strange thing in the digital world. Everything is a contract. You do contract with the digital companies and they say they protect your right. But it's a one-sided contract. Nobody reads a 500-page document that Google or somebody sends you. We just sign. Sign away all our rights, right? So we have to be protected. Now, if a startup from India goes to Australia, it needs the protection and the framework of laws. And today, frankly, our laws all around the world are behind the need of a digital state or a digital, uh, digital world. We are living in the digital world. It has come to us after COVID with a bang. It has happened already. Now, are there adequate laws to protect consumers, to foster competition, etc., to stop the prevent the growth of monopolies. Look at Amazon. Amazon, with this huge $2 trillion market capitalization, huge amount of money can destroy the entire retail industry and take it over, right? Because for them, the costing is marginal. So we're seeing this rise of digital giants at a scale we have not seen before in the world. Maybe the East India Company long back was a simile to what maybe Google is. You know, if you look at the scale and what they have, the, the sheer power, the sheer power 
I mean, they're all worth about eight, nine trillion dollars more than the GDP of most countries in the world. So what do you do? So I think there's a requirement that uh, all across that we need laws to protect citizens, individual rights. Courts can then adjudicate what has to be done. We can't do it with the state. We can't live in countries where we're protected by contract. Now, I'm speaking this as a business person. As far as innovation is concerned, we have to create a framework that innovation is fostered all around the world. There's a free flow of technology subject to proper security. There is an adequate protection of data. So we require a new framework. A global, global pact is required and it protects all countries and all companies all across. Hmm. All right, so I think I think we now have the last uh, five to six minutes. So I'm now going to go around in turns and give everybody one minute to make their closing comments. I'll start with Azuner uh, Um In conclusion, uh, I want to mention one of my uh, favorite uh, quotes. That is, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So I think this is the time not to compete to each other but uh, more than collaboration and cooperation is needed and uh, our founding father of the nation bangabandhu sheikh mujib rahman said that uh, his uh, core of diplomacy was friendship to all malistanan but we want to create a friendship with all the nations and we want to utilize the knowledge and technology for betterment of the uh, world so not for the single country, not for the single IT uh, uh, leader, but we want to create the equal opportunity for all of the Indo-Pacific uh, nations and countries and citizens of our region. And this is the time to create more regional cooperation and platform for data sharing, for innovation and introducing new uh, digital solutions for the Indo-Pacific area. So I would like to request all of you to come forward and let's work together to make the world a better place. Erin, your concluding comments, please. I really, I, I love that comment about going, um, if you want to go far, go together. Um, and I think that what I'd like to conclude by saying is that's great from a government perspective but we also need to pick up the civil society actors as well and from my perspective where I see the real investment return on investment will be is that younger generation of people around Australia, Southeast Asia, India and others around the world because if you're investing in them who are at the forefront of technology, they're the users of this technology, they're the creators of this technology, they're the real innovators and entrepreneurs in the region, investing in them in the long term is what's going to carry these relationships forward and it's also where you're going to find your solutions as well. So it's not just government going together but also picking up that civil society and taking, with them, on, taking them on this journey as well. Yes, well, I agree with everything I've heard um, from my from my colleagues. I'll just add that you know, for the United States, I think that the um, the Indo-Pacific is about new partnerships. I mean, obviously there are, there are old uh, relationships, treaty allies, and so on. But uh, as we look at the challenges that we face in the future, uh, we're going to have to forge new partnerships to deal with new problems. Um, that's part of what we've seen with the U.S. and India, you know, and, and figuring out that relationship—not a treaty ally, but a very close partner. Um, and, you know, we'll have to figure that out with other states, large and small, to tackle these problems that we've been talking about tonight, where we have to um, balance uh, the need for freedom and openness with the need for a certain amount of management. 
right? And, and you know, you can go too far on the management side, uh, as we just noted, um, but you can also, if, but if you don't manage it, you can find yourself in a situation where you're vulnerable. And so striking that balance is going to be tricky, but I think um, with those new partnerships with states large and small, we'll, uh, I, I have faith that we will uh, be successful. Melinda Spy. Well, we are living in the new world, is the digital world today, post-industrial world. For that, we need international agreements on a global scale to make sure that certain fundamental support in place for everybody on this planet. Then we need global regional cooperation between countries. The Indo-Pacific is a great way to create a digital partnership between all countries. In fact, India and Japan already have a digital partnership, they sign an agreement. I hope India signs with Bangladesh, with Southeast Asia, Australia, etc. Then we need a national framework within each country to foster innovation, protect the rights of citizens, and make sure there's orderly competition. And I think all these three things are required. For that, we have to sit together, learn together, ideate together, and create common documentation. I hope uh, ORF will uh, lead the way in doing all this and in proposing a universal declaration of digital rights for the entire world. That's right. Uh, Toby, final word to you today. Well, I think what, what I want to say as a conclusion is um, partnership is going to be absolutely central to everything we do. States with states, you know, that's why Australia is signing partnerships with India, you know, with other regional collaborators such as Japan, the US and others. Um, we're also working very strongly with the private sector, you know, they're equally part of the equation, um, non-governmental organizations, um, you know, there's a whole multitude of civil society actors who are a key part of this as well. But I think one big issue that we all need to be thinking of, whether we're in industry, whether we're especially in government, is that this issue is not going away in terms of its importance in statecraft. And if we as states are not thinking strategically about how we engage on cyber and tech issues over the you know five to ten year time horizon, um, then we'll be simply left behind in terms of what's going on. So we need to do that together in partnership in our region. But I would implore all countries to be thinking about how they strategically engage on these issues, even if it's a, a plan in private or something that they share publicly. These are really important signaling tools and architecture for all of us to engage on these issues going forward. Um, we will be in these kinds of panels for the rest of our lives because tech is only ever more central to the way that we engage as countries and human beings. Thank you. So clearly the Indo-Pacific is an emerging region of importance for several reasons. Tech, of course, being just one of the many other reasons. And as one of the panelists said, we need to go together to go far. On that note, I'd like to thank all of you for that very insightful conversation today. Many thanks. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.